What do you do when your divorce case involves criminal allegations, such as family violence, DWIs, substance abuse, and illegal electronic surveillance? My guest is here today to talk with us about the intersection of family law and criminal law. Scott Becker is a partner with the law firm of McCathern, Shakui, Evans, and Greenkey. McCathern has offices here in Dallas and also in Frisco, Houston, and Los Angeles. Before joining the law firm of McCathern, Scott Becker was the district judge for the 219th District Court here in Collin County. As district court judge, he presided over matters from uh, multi-million dollar civil litigation cases to complex property and custody family law cases, as well as criminal cases. He has a unique perspective to share with us on the intersection of criminal and family law. And he is also board certified in family law and civil trial law. Scott, thank you so much for taking time to be with us here today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. As we get started, I want to talk first about family violence. I think that that is um, an issue that, you know, we see in a lot of family law cases. Um, and so let's just start off by talking about what, what is family violence? So family violence is actually a defined term within the family code. And it also is defined in the criminal code, I believe, but they use virtually identical definitions. I'm not going to sit here and convey to you that I have either of them memorized, but I will tell you that they are specific terms. Uh, and so it's typically any act of violence between, uh, certainly between a husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, the romantic partners. So if people are living together in a romantic fashion, they're gonna be covered by family violence. It also covers people's children. It also covers um, people's parents sometimes. So, um, <clears throat> pardon me. So basically if two strangers get into a scuffle, that's just assault. If a husband and wife get into some kind of pushing or shoving match, that's family violence. If two strangers get into a shoving or pushing match, that's assault. If a father and a son get into it, that's family violence. If it's an adult son who lives outside the home and is no longer part of that family unit in the house, then you're going to go back to it being traditional, just assault, not a family violence situation. I think in our culture today, we, we use the term abuse so broadly. And of course, um, there are different types of abuse. We can um, hear about that. There's you know, emotional abuse or financial abuse. Do those other types of abuse fall within the realm of family violence? So if you have one specific instance of name calling, no. If you can show, typically family violence is gonna require some type of physical act or at least a threat of a physical act. You don't have to wait for somebody to actually be harmed physically for them to be guilty of, for the other perpetrator to be guilty of the offense. It's enough to threaten them, right? But um, if you're trying to put on a case of long-term abuse, then while the other types of abuse like financial, emotional, psychological might not fall into the definition of family violence as a crime or family violence for purposes of uh, a divorce or a custody proceeding, it can certainly bear upon uh, the fact finder determining if this was an abusive relationship overall, okay? If all you have is you know, financial abuse where one spouse was in charge of all the money and the other one really just kind of lived on an allowance or things like that, and that's it, that's probably not gonna get you a finding of family violence. It doesn't meet the definition. It's not gonna get there. Does it mean you shouldn't put on evidence of that in your divorce case? Absolutely not. If, if it suits 
the arguments you're making otherwise that one spouse is somehow disadvantaged or deserves a disproportionate distribution of the assets for some reason, then absolutely put it on. It may not get you a finding of family violence, but it's still useful. And so I think when we're talking about the divorce case, of course, there are all kinds of bad acts that happen in uh, marriages that are falling apart and relationships that are falling apart. Uh, but you know, to really understand what constitutes family violence as defined by the code has a little has a higher standard, um, and it comes with its some additional protections. Um, and that's not to say that other types of bad acts won't won't be relevant or won't weigh into the overall divorce case. Uh, but I mean, I think it's interesting for people to know and understand that family violence is, you know, a very defined term. And one of the more um, obvious connections and more long lasting connections is, <coughs> pardon me, um, I think we, as we sit here as two family law practitioners, know the concept of joint managing conservatorship, sole managing conservator, possessory conservator. We know what those terms mean. I don't know if any of your viewers are watching right now. Like Texas law starts off by deeming both mom and dad to be equal in virtually every aspect. There's two things where they kind of have to pick one side or the other, which is who's going to be the primary parent. That's a shortcut for where's the kid going to live so that we can have a determination about where they're going to go to school and then which parent's going to get a possession schedule, right? And obviously only one parent is responsible for paying child support to the other parent. You don't have it going back and forth all the time. So other than those two things, you're, you're gonna start out, as we know, mom and dad are on the same ground, equal ground. That's joint managing conservatorship, and that's the presumptive sort of starting point, right, under the code, unless somebody can show a reason that shouldn't be the case. And I'll just chime in here just to say that, that when we talk about joint man managing conservatorship, we're talking about um, the ability to make decisions for the children regarding things like invasive medical care you know, taking them to the therapist, um, you know, whether they're going to need a 504, you know, special education plan, making education decisions or what school they'll go to. And so those are some of the big issues. Um, and yes, right. Yeah, we start off with that presumption that both parents get to have a say in those types of issues. That they're both equally qualified to do it and, and have the children's best interest at heart. And so why should one be preferred over the other, right? Obviously, that can pose some problems in the future when people are making decisions, because if if there's a disagreement between mom and dad and they're on equal footing as to who has the right to say it, then you get into does the no win because it's got to be by agreement. All of the things. I think that's probably something you want to talk about in a different podcast. <laughs> right? Exactly right. It, I mean, it can get really complicated. And so that is where I might, I think, yes, additional yeah. podcasts, we can delve into that. So, so if we're not going to be joint managing conservators, then you have to make one parent the sole managing conservator and the other one would be a possessory conservator. Um, and sole, well, it doesn't sound like everybody probably thinks Oh, I want to be the possessory conservator because I want possession. Yeah, you would be falling for the trick there. That's not, if you're in an argument about this, you probably want to be the sole managing conservator. They're the ones who have, uh, they got the whip hand. Okay. Let's just, <laughs> they got the They've whip got hand. They've got the exclusive rights and duties on they, those yeah, big, yeah, big issues. Correct. Um, and, and so, the possessory conservators also still have rights and duties. So absolutely. they're not totally stripped, but they don't get to make the, those big decisions yes. will fall to the parent with sole management. So, so getting back to, the family violence context. At the onset of a divorce, we often see one spouse alleging some abuse accusations against the other spouse. Not always, but typically it is the wife accusing the, the husband of, of doing these things. That, that I don't want to sit here and say that's never the reverse dynamic. 
And by the way, in today's world, we also now have numerous same-sex couples. So it, it doesn't have to be just a man perpetrating on a woman. Um, and we now have same-sex couples that also have children. So they can be in custody fights, right? So if, if one parent is accusing the other of being abusive either towards the adult parent or towards the children or both, um, and there's this idea that even if they're not physically abusive to the children, the fact that the children are made to be in this environment where the other parent is being abused, <clears throat> that's detrimental, right? Right. So if these accusations are made in the context of the family case, <clears throat> excuse me, and the family law judge finds there's merit there and says there was family violence, well, what that does effectively is the parent who's committing the family violence, if there's been a finding against them, they legally cannot be a joint managing conservator of the children. Right. And then you also might find what I've seen happen frequently is if there is a finding of family violence, judges are pretty easily convinced, and perhaps with good reason, that um, the offending parent needs to have a bunch of restrictions put on their possession and access of the children. Now they're not allowed to see the kids without some kind of supervisor in place, whether that be another family member or whether that be a professional supervisor position that has a cost to it. You've started to erode the other parent's access to the kids. If the other parent is actually violent, those are all good things. Exactly. If the other parent is not, and it's an exaggeration or an outright lie, which goodness knows that never happens <laughs> in court, right? People are always telling the truth. Um, then when that happens, the, the parent who's been lied about, if they're still being restricted, all of a sudden they can see their kids less and it just, it becomes a snowball effect. It becomes harder and harder. It becomes easier for one parent to monopolize access to the children and begin to alienate those kids' points of view, either intentionally or um, subtly. As kids see one parent less and less, they begin to lose connection with that parent. They begin to maybe resent that parent for how come you don't want to come see me? And, and it, you know, we catch these cases sometimes years in and the damage is done because of that original finding. Sometimes it's valid and sometimes it's not. So we got to be very mindful, depending on which side of the case we get, about that finding of family violence. It can have long-term impacts. It really can. And I think it's important for people to understand that because the stakes are so high, because the finding of family violence has such an <coughs> impact on the family law case, um, which absolutely necessary when, you know, when the violence is there, um, that, you know, sometimes people do try to use it as a strategic play. And I'm sure you saw that when you were a judge and certainly as a practitioner that does happen sometimes. But there are there are high stakes there, too, for the person who wants to make false allegations, correct? Well, before we get to their allegations and their high stakes, I want to point out one thing is that we've talked about the intersection between family law and criminal law. Well, here's a perfect example of it, because now if you're the accused parent of family violence, and again, I'm going to stick with dad because this happens statistically probably more to dad, <laughs> historically at least, yeah, more right. to fathers, okay? But if you're the person accused of it, the dad, um, you probably now have a criminal case pending against you for assault, family violence, and that has its own criminal connotations. And you probably have a separate lawyer uh, most of the times to address the criminal aspect. And the common reflex in criminal cases, because you do have a right not to testify. You have a Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. They cannot make you testify. So a lot of defense lawyers, myself included on occasion when I handle criminal cases, will 
have a client not talk. Because if the state can't prove their case, the client doesn't need to rebut the accusations. And a lot of times, the story, the more it's told, if it isn't true, it gets pulled apart. A good lawyer can pull apart those accusations, right? But the criminal process runs on its own timeline. And so you can find yourself quite frequently in a position where you're at the family court temporary orders proceeding with accusations of family violence being made against the father. And the criminal defense lawyer is telling the family lawyer, Shh, don't put him on the stand. We don't want him talking because we don't want to say anything. The fear is that if you do go on record, now you're stuck with that story. And if it turns out to be just a little bit different, that somehow that could be used against the, uh, the person who's accused, right? right? So if you remain silent to the benefit of your criminal defense lawyer, it may be really hurtful in your family law case because the family law judge is permitted to take your silence into account. The other side is permitted to say, hey, if he didn't do anything, he would get up here and explain his version of what happened. And so when fathers or others accused of family violence remain silent in the family law proceedings, it might help them in their criminal case, but it can really hamstring them in their family case. And I think that clients are well served when they have a family law attorney and a criminal defense attorney. Either it's the same person, and, and there are some people that do both of those, or at least have, if they're two different people, have them communicating and coordinating so that you can serve the overall needs of the client. Sometimes criminal needs are going to make the family law needs sort of be sacrificed at the feet of the criminal case, but it sure. doesn't always have to be that way. So, Yeah, I think it's a really interesting perspective and one that um, people don't often take into account when trying to confront these issues. Um, and, and in part because, you know, um, any, any acts of self-defense are not considered family violence, right? So right. if you're being attacked first and then you, you know, you push somebody off of you to get them away, right? Um, that's not family violence. You're allowed to protect yourself. That's correct. Yeah. Um, what do you, I, I want to talk for a moment because we just were talking about like allegations and, you know, um, threats or, you know, fears that people have. Um, some people are very sensitive and get scared very easily. Um, and other people, you know, it's something that might have been frightening to me might not be frightening to you, for example. What kind of evidence do you need to prove family violence in a family law case? Well, it's the same evidence you would, I mean, you've probably thought about it. It's, you know, you want, certainly you want your victim to be able to testify how they were thinking and feeling, right? So the only person who knows what's inside the mind and the emotions of the victim is the victim, okay? Now, the credibility of their testimony about that is gonna come into, well, what are the surrounding circumstances of it? If, if, if the alleged perpetrator, the dad, is some 110 pound weakling and kind of henpecked looking fella, right? And the mom, who accuses him of family violence is some triathlete who's super fit and is clearly the more physically strong of the two and she's the one claiming it well that's just going to look weird like is the judge going to believe that is the is the jury if you have a jury in a particular instance whether it's a criminal case or a family case making that decision not a lot of juries in family cases probably the subject of another podcast but, <laughs> but the point is whoever's making the decision they're just weighing credibility and they're looking at all the surrounding circumstances does, does it make sense that the person who claims they felt afraid, was it 
sensible, reasonable for them to be afraid in that situation. And it's back to that reasonable man standard that we, a reasonable person standard that we all, mm-hmm. you know, busted <laughs> our butts about that first semester of law school. Like, right. I've, I've yet to meet the reasonable person, by the way, right? So <laughs> I don't know who they are. Somebody excluded, I hope. No, <laughs> so. Exactly. Um, no, it, you know, what do you advise um, clients in terms of the type of evidence that is can be most persuasive in family courts? Well, recordings are good, yeah. right? When you know, if you're if, if you're coming in with the he said, she said, there has been more than one occasion where I've sat on the bench and sized everybody up and thought, yeah, there's there's a reason you two are arguing. You know, we joke about in family law that shoes come in pairs, like you two deserve each other, right? <laughs> and then when I hear a recording of a custody exchange or uh, a phone call between the two of them um, where one of them is just cussing a blue streak and chewing up the other one and and, and the victim is just kind of going okay mm-hmm. and not not taking the bait not giving as good as they get that can be helpful yeah okay and so- there are other times when you might get a call like that and you could tell that the recording was done and they didn't start recording until after they had spun the other side up, right? right? Get them all excited, torqued off, and then all of a sudden you hit the record button and you know, they're all jumping and chewing on them. It's like you didn't hear what led into that. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, that doesn't that. So the judges are, I mean, I did not get some magic powers when they gave me a robe. It's not like, you know, Harry Potter where you get a wand and you can suddenly do things that other people can't do. Right. Um, I... I I, my ability to size up the credibility of somebody and I, I think was pretty good, but I was not perfect at it. Yeah. Um, and so the things that you think might carry the day, the same things are going through the judge's mind. I find what helps me is when I have something like this, I'll run a scenario by my wife or some other, you know, tr- mostly my wife because she's smarter than me. Um, <laughs> But she's not a lawyer. I, I was the smartest thing I ever did was marry outside the profession. So she's a regular person. She's the one who's most likely to resemble what our jury pool might look like, or she has no historic knowledge of the case like a, like I do or my opposing counsel does. So the judge has come into the case initially, certainly at a temporary orders hearing with blank slate. Right. So I like running things by her once in a while because I can tell if I'm overly sensitive to testimony of my client or the others are overly afraid of something or if i think you know if, if it if she's not moved by it i need to reconsider the persuasiveness of that so it helps if you've got somebody like that in your practice maybe you can it doesn't work as good i think to run it by other lawyers because we already look at things like lawyers like this is how i would try that case i want to hear what a random person thinks of my evidence because that's what i'm trying to convince right and sometimes it can be you know really important as a practitioner, and I, I think if um, you know if you are in a family violence situation, um, and your your attorney is giving you a little bit of pushback, you need to know and understand that's a good thing because we have to be skeptical. We need to know, you know, do the do the facts justify the relief? Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, you can end up in some hot water if you're you know just always down there um, asking for you know protective orders. And well, in that first request colors the judge's perception of your credibility for the rest of the case. Right. So if you're firing off with a bunch of exaggerated claims that ultimately don't bear out, um, it hurts. And you have to understand, most people are coming down there with exaggerated stuff. The bulk of what the judges see is 
overextended. And so they they're, they have a pretty high bar a lot of times. And so I know that, you know that. Right. So when we're pushing back on our clients going up, that's not enough. They're looking at us like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so it is important to, to accept that. That's good. One of the things we were talking about um, a little bit earlier is the difference um, between getting a protective order in family court, but also, it you know, even if you aren't in the middle of a family law case, there are other avenues uh, to pursue a protective order, and that's, you know, getting a magistrate's uh, protective order. What do you see as the difference between the two and maybe sort of the advantages or disadvantages? I'm not sure that there's an advantage or disadvantage to either. Functionally, the only thing I can recall being different between those two orders as far as their ability to protect someone and their exposure to somebody who violates them is the same. Um, there is a, a separate crime for violation of a protective order and violating a protective order issued by a magistrate versus one issued by a district judge. Same, same crime same criminal consequences for that person. Um, the single difference that I can think of is that the issuing judge is the only one allowed to walk back that protective order and undo it. So if even as a district court judge, if a magistrate issued that emergency protective order, and how many times have we seen this, right? That protective order gets issued, a week goes by, the victim realizes, oh, wait, this is going to have X and such effect and they can't stay in the home and I need them to because they help watch the kids. And mm. oh, by the way, they're our income for the paying the rent. And I, I was just mad that night. I don't really want to get it that far, right? That happens. And so then the two people like, okay, I agree to remove the protective order. Well, our clients don't have that authority. The client doesn't get to undo what they had the judge do. So when they come back to me in the divorce case, if I was still the judge, if I didn't issue the protective order, I can't undo it. You got to go back to the magistrate judge or let it expire. Right. So um, I think that is something that's probably the primary difference is who can undo it. And, and you can go get a magistrate's order for protection uh, without having a lawyer. I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, you can certainly also get a true. pro se protective order, but there's a system there to help mm -hmm. uh, protect victims. There is. And while I, I know, you know, you you work with a lot of def in defense cases right now, so there's definitely that perspective. Um, the fact is that family violence is incredibly serious. And, and when it happens, it's incredibly tragic and, you know, Unfortunately, I think we see a lot of that on the news. Um, I had a, I had a, when I was a prosecutor in the Collin County DA's office years ago, we had an in-house CLE brought to us by a prosecutor uh, from the Dallas County DA's office who very experienced. Um, I think they may have been in charge of the Dallas County Family Violence Division. And she... Um, in, in a rather gallow sense of humor, mm -hmm. referred to her division as the pre-murder division. Mm, right. Because many times, and that's, that's the problem, right, is that when we don't listen to people complaining about abuse and we're wrong, that can happen. And when I say we, I mean everybody in the system, right? Okay. That's the fear. So that fear leads to sometimes protective orders being entered that shouldn't be entered because a judge might be operating from a place of, well, I'm going to err on the side of caution here um, and get it granted. And then there's the other long-term consequences. So the people who are genuinely um, suffering from family violence, that's no joke. But 
they're being done no favors by those who are taking advantage of the issue and making false allegations. That's right. the problem. Right. And so it is, I mean, it, it is easy to be jaded in, in the way the system works, um, just, just because you do see a lot of uh, people trying to abuse the system and, um, and use it in a strategic way when it really doesn't justify. And then the people who pay the price are the people who the are genuine victims. victims. Yeah. Um, what we'll talk, just uh, touch on this briefly, but you know, resources that are available to people who are victims of family violence, what have you seen in your experience? Well, there's certainly several, um, like one of the biggest concerns is if you're financially captive, so to speak, as a victim of family violence, where are you gonna go? once you've got the courage to make this claim and, and you need to be free from your abuser. And there are different clinics or- um, Shelters. Shelters, family sorry, I was shelters. struggling for the word. There's some yeah. family violence shelters that will provide those places to live for, for the, the typically women um, and the kids. And now those are, that's a short-term fix. You know, you can't just move in there forever, but it's usually long enough that it can allow you to escape mm -hmm. from the actual abuse and begin to get your feet under you so you can start going, okay, solved that problem. I'm no longer worried about whether or not when I come home or when my significant other comes home from work that I'm gonna catch a beating. You know, I'm not worried about that. My kids don't have to worry about that. But obviously staying in a shelter is not a forever solution, but now you can at least take that time, effort and energy and focus it on, okay, now where are you gonna live long-term? How are you gonna get some money under you to be able to pay rent, a deposit, things like that? That's the biggest single uh, program I can think of right now. There's a couple of different places out there. That do there that. really are. And I'll just, I mean, we know the family plays here in North Texas and Genesis <laughs> Women's Shelter and a um, safe haven, I think. And there, there are lots of others and we'll provide a link to resources for people. Um, and I think one of the greatest benefits they provide also is counseling also, you know, for the victim and also for the children to really help begin, you know, the healing process. Um, Let's switch now and talk a little bit about substance abuse and okay. DWIs. And I mean, it does come up, uh, you know, sometimes you have people who are just not coping well with a dissolving relationship and are making bad decisions. And then other times you have much more uh, extensive substance abuse issues. You have a chicken and egg thing, there, right? <laughs> are, they, are, they, are they abusing substances because their relationship is going in the toilet or... Is the relationship going in the toilet because they're abusing substances at some point? You know? Exactly right. Um, how often do you see this come up in family law cases? And, and I don't know if I could give a percentage of it, but it's certainly not rare. I mean, um, and usually the typical substances are the ones with, you know, alcohol, like you mentioned. Um, prescription pills are another one. Um, that seems to be the uh, more frequent in more affluent counties. Mm -hmm. the, the use of prescription pills uh, as a as a problem, I guess. Um, but it's not limited to just the affluent counties, so that can happen anywhere. Um, the problem is that, especially if it's alcohol, a lot of times that is something that both of the partners engage in, and each of them thinks the other one overindulges. When it comes to prescriptions, you can kind of track that. You know, but when it comes to alcohol, each of them enjoyed, they probably met when they were drinking. They probably drank plenty together during the course of a relationship. 
and and one of them got more. They each think the other one's the alcoholic. Neither one of them wants to see themselves that way. So. <laughs> right. And so when we talk about the injunctions that a court will put in place with prohibiting, you know, either party from drinking any alcohol while the case is pending, that usually, oh, no, I don't want that. <laughs> right. Well, and so it's interesting because a lot of times what I'll see is, okay, well, no alcohol while they have the children. Okay. Right. And so it's kind of a trick, right? One, one side... They come in saying they want the kids equal. They want 50-50. They want week on, week off, which is is a much more common and popular possession schedule today than it was, you know, 20 years ago or even perhaps 10 years ago. Not in the family code yet. Constantly making efforts to try and get it added to the family code as an acceptable, you know, um, option equal with the current code um, schedules right now. But once you point out hey, you can't have any alcohol when you have the kids. You're going to have the kids for a whole week. You kind of get, it's interesting <laughs> to gauge the reaction from the client. Like, well, wait, wait, what? A little and reality you get it, it's, like a, it's like a, a bet in poker. Like, I'm just going to put a little bit of money in the middle, see what everybody else's reaction is. And so that, that, that's interesting to gauge that reaction from your client. The other one I'll have is genuinely, sometimes you have one person who is absolutely problem and the other one is not and so the one who's not who maybe only has a glass of wine or a margarita or a beer or something at happy hour or with dinner two or three nights a week tops or something like that or maybe even once a week that person will be offended if the suggestion is hey both of you are going to be monitored for your alcohol intake i don't have a problem that's fine i tell if i have that client i tell them look then agree to this for the next 30 to 60 days right do you think they can make it that long? Oh, I got you. And so they're proving their point that they're fine and the other person's got the problem. And sometimes that person will tell me, let's do it for 90 or something like that. They'll say a longer date. And then I get a really good reaction from the other side where that lawyer will come back to me and go, my guy's only willing to do it for 30 days. I'm like, okay, I think me and the other lawyer know exactly who's got the alcohol problem. But there's, right. and I've, I've been that lawyer too, where I'm like, yeah, I can't agree to more than 30 days. I mean, it is, so. you know, if you've used alcohol responsibly, it can be a real burden in mm-hmm. family court. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, definitely can be a game of gotcha with the Soberlink devices or whatever's being used to monitor. Well, and there's um, different, like you said, there's different devices, right? We have the Soberlink, which is effectively like a, a little cell phone with a little tube on it that takes your picture and you blow into it. And that's based on either a schedule. Sometimes you can have randomized. Uh, it, it really depends on who the provider of the instrument is. That can be a, a weapon because if you are the, as the person who can demand the testing, you can adjust the schedule and make them right. blow into that device at awkward times. It's really, you know, and they can do it to you. So it's kind of back and forth, like, you know, I'll get you. Um, and the other one that we use a lot is um, you can put it on a car, right? The intoxilizer, um, or pardon me, that's the testing device for when you get arrested. The, um, it's a deep lung device that they can install on the ignition mechanism of your car so you cannot start your car without first blowing into that device and it takes your picture. So it's effectively that little portable one stuck to the car. Right, right. They have in-home devices that aren't portable that you can only, you know, it's, it's like it says, it's in-home. So you have to be near your home to be able to blow into that one. And so there's a schedule there. And then we also have SCRAM devices, which are anklets that it stands for Secure Continuous Remote Alcohol Monitoring, SCRAM. Put that on people's ankles. That one's used very frequently in criminal matters. Um, 
it, it monitors somebody's alcohol intake continuously by reading through the skin. Um, that one you don't have to put timers on, right? <laughs> because it's just monitored all, all the time. time. But it's kind of awkward to explain that in your board meeting or your PTA meeting or you know stuff like that. So each of those little testing devices have their pros and cons. Um, one of them is all the time, so you have some assurance that they're not manipulating their drinking around the testing and trying to game the system. But it's awkward and embarrassing. And whatever one parent agrees to, a lot of times the other one's got to agree to the same thing. So at least for a for a fair period, period of time, of time yeah. right? Now, if if evidence comes out, the judge hears, you know, testimony and realizes, okay, well, only one parent got arrested for DWI. So I think we're going to test that one. That happens, right? Yeah. Um, throughout the course of the early agreement, if only one parent is struggling to comply and show they're not consuming alcohol, the judge might go, okay, you're done. We don't test you anymore, but we're going to keep it on this person for a while longer. That can happen. Because the most important thing is to comply. I mean, if you are under any kind of monitoring, every time there's, you know, a misstep, it's, it's, there's an excuse and it mm -hmm. just, I imagine from the judge's perspective, doesn't play very well. There is no excuse that somebody, that, that our clients are going to come up with that that judge has not heard. Right. Just, right, right. just not. And, and excuses, I mean, are, are part of, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with somebody who is struggling with yeah. substance abuse issues. Well, and, you know, when we switch to the portable devices, this is not one of those devices. That's just my iPhone, by the way. <laughs> I'm not being monitored for alcohol intake. Um, they have the, you know, they can be more discreet. You can mm -hmm. put them in a purse or a briefcase or leave them in your car, right? right. Um, and they're near you so you can test more frequently and be a little more discreet about it. You can run to the restroom, excuse yourself, so nobody sees you're having to do that. But that does lend itself to trying to game the system if somebody is a violator, trying to figure out, well, when can I drink and not get busted? That's the mindset of the violator, right? Exactly. And one of the things I think is really interesting these days that um, certainly comes up a lot is the fact that marijuana, which is not legal in Texas for recreational, uh, but is available just over the, our northern border and in Oklahoma and some of the other uh, surrounding states. You know, it's easy. You go on a trip to Colorado and, you know, you're hanging out with friends and then suddenly you've got marijuana in your system. Um, you know, how, how often are you seeing that affecting family law cases? And, and, you know, really, what's your experience in terms of how judges perceive that? Well, I think it depends on the county that you're in, um, how the judges perceive use of marijuana. And even within a county, it depends on judge to judge. Obviously, the more conservative and right-wing our judges are, the less likely they're going to be tolerant of marijuana use, even if it wasn't used in violation of Texas law. So even if you've got the client who went on a ski trip over spring break and got high, and then they come back and test, it's like, well, I didn't break the law, but alcohol is legal. And there are still restrictions throughout divorce cases about whether or not you can do that or not, right? So um, I think that's really the number one thing is we need to know which judge we're in front of, which county we're in, okay? Um, I don't see it that frequently as much anymore. I, I mean, that's just me personally. I haven't, I'm seeing still a lot of the alcohol complaints in prescription drug use more than anything. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm learning been doing this for over 20 years, was a judge for over eight, is this idea that some people can take certain medications, so they have a prescription for them. So those are gonna be okay, right? You're gonna test positive for whatever that substance is. Right. 
think Adderall shows up as amphetamine, right? So that's going to look bad, but once you have the script, that's clear, right? But then we have this argument, well, are they taking it appropriately? Are they following their prescription? Are they taking it in therapeutic levels, right? That's a term that um, I think I've heard in cases. And um, I just recently learned that that's pretty much just, we made that up as lawyers. Like that's not something, there are some medications that we really don't have a therapeutic level for. Mm. And so from person to person, it doesn't really matter what the test results show whether they're taking a little bit of it or a lot of it, there's no such thing as a therapeutic level necessarily for that particular medication. And that can be troubling because we know that people can have prescriptions that they misuse. And as long as they got a prescription for it, unless they're doing something that we can catch on video or audio or have some other person who doesn't have a dog in the fight testify, they were acting really weird. And we can attribute that to the medication. The drug testing for it's not gonna help anything for you. Right. I mean, it is really interesting. And also, I mean, it just raises another another issue that I'm thinking about is that, you know, sometimes people are prescribed some very serious medication to help with, you know, stabilize them mentally. Um, and they're not compliant. I mean, they're not taking the lack of consumption. So you, yeah. yeah. So you have, you know, people kind of abusing or not using the system wisely across the board. And, yeah. I, and I, I think one um, one thing people may not realize, and as a defense attorney, you, you would know this, is that the testing isn't, it isn't perfect. So we can send you in for a blood test, we can send you in for urine tests and hair and nail and all of that. Um, but it doesn't always tell us all the information we know, need to know for the full picture. So I certainly cannot reveal the name. I am aware of a case where an individual who was subject to court drug testing sent another individual to take the tests. Mm. So the drug testing facility is not foolproof when it comes to that. And they're not doing anything wrong. I mean, it's not the testing facility's job to look at somebody's ID and look. And in this day and age, I mean, look, I don't even, I think in my driver's license, I don't have a beard. Right. And, you know, they let you renew the photo for years, right? So I was all the weight changes. (laughs) Yeah, I was probably 30 pounds lighter, didn't have a beard and, you know, 20 years younger in that picture. If I show up and show that to somebody and say, it's me, they're going to go, huh, close enough, right? So that happens. And so those drug test results are clearly worthless, right? Right. So right. And there, I mean, there are ways that people know how to game the system. And Mm so um, I just think it's important to be aware. I think one of the things we look at that's most telling is what you were talking about earlier is behaviors and, you know, people who are eyewitness to those behaviors. And, and ultimately that's, what's going to, you know, impact your court case, your family law case is your ability to be there with your kids and, you know, look after their best interests. Um, let's talk about electronic surveillance. This is sort of a fun topic. Um, it's a scary topic for lawyers, <laughs> uh, because it's so easy to, and there's so many different options available now to, you know, do surveillance on people, but it can be very, very muddy and very sticky, and the sanctions can be pretty stiff. Um, so let's just talk, I guess, what, you know, what initially are you concerned about with clients when it comes to, the, you know, their self-help and gathering evidence? Well, the one that has scared me the most uh, within the past year is recordings. Um, I, think it, I think we all agree it's common for clients to record the other one in a phone call, right? Or to run a, maybe run their iPhone and record video or audio 
um, of custody exchanges, you know, because that's where flare-ups happen, right? So Texas is a one-party consent state, and that simply means that if you or I are having a conversation with each other, that's not being recorded for a podcast, obviously, <laughs> um, either one of us has the ability to give consent to record that conversation, that private conversation, okay? Um, so long we don't as have we're to, in Texas. <laughs> correct. Or, or any other one-party consent right. state, okay? Um, so if you and I are having a private conversation at the mall in Plano or something that we think is private or in, your, in, in our office or whatever, some other private location, um, either one of us can hit the record button and while it may be creepy and not cool, it's not illegal. Okay. Recording somebody without telling them is certainly going to put people off. I mean, if, if I've had cases when I was a, a district attorney where a private investigator recorded somebody else in the course of gathering evidence for the defendant and the private investigator did not tell the person that they were recording him. Perfectly legal, but the sum and substance of my cross-examination to make the investigator look shady in the eyes of the jury was the fact that he did it secretly. So it can be permissible, even if it's shady, okay? Problem we run into is if there are, uh, and by the way, if that conversation is a three-person conversation and there's three of us here, all we need is one of us to be able to record it, right? Um, if it's a public setting, like a graduation speech or, or um, coaches talking to their players on the sidelines, okay, that's not a private conversation. That's a public one and there's different connotations there, different aspects. Where we have a problem is when parents start having children record the other parent. When, let's say, dad wants the kids to record mom and the other you know mom doesn't know about it so that's a problem because it gets a little dicey minors are not allowed to consent they're under the age of consent so if we don't let them sign contracts and we don't let them vote and we don't let them do a lot of things under a certain age i think it's under age 18 <clears throat> then they don't have the authority to consent to recording. Mm -hmm. So if they're doing that without telling the other parent, it may be problematic. Now, a parent has the authority to consent for their child. So they can legitimately, if they can show a good faith basis, explain, you know, I was recording my child without their knowledge because I thought some that they were talking to some child predator on the other mm -hmm. end of the phone or something of that nature. So one parent can consent on behalf of the child. But if, if the child is secretly recording one parent without the knowledge of the other parent, nobody consented to that conversation. That's problematic. So then so the child brings that phone call or, or car trip or whatever, that recording back to mom and says, mom, look, this is how dad behaved or dad, look, this is how mom behaved. And mom's or dad is shocked and outraged or I knew it. You know, now we finally have the proof. And then they bring that to the lawyer and the lawyer brings that to court and plays it. Okay. Well, there are statutes that talk about the punishment for the publication of an illegally obtained recording. And there are no protections for lawyers under those statutes. It hasn't been litigated very much right now. So I'm having difficulty finding a problem, you know, finding coverage mm -hmm. on that issue about, well, how much would a lawyer be held accountable for that? But the fines are pretty stiff and they're mandatory fines. It's not 
a lot of the times we face this judge may order. Mm -hmm. the, the language of some of these statutes is shall award. And the fines are as much as $10,000 per publication. So if the lawyer plays it in court, that's one publication. If there's the judge, the bailiff, the court reporter, that's three people listening. Is that three publications? Mm. If it's a jury trial and it's a jury of 12 people, is that 12 more publications? It can be, it can get really expensive really fast. Um, it can be a problem. Now, now what happens when those, when, when the mom or the dad, whoever's got the recording now brings it to the kids' counselors mm -hmm. and therapists and the counselor or therapist plays it? Counselor or therapist is potentially exposed. There's not a lot of litigation on how these things have happened right now, but it, it sent a chill through me first time I had this happen. And I'm like, I think we as lawyers probably would do well to be a little more careful and just kind of do that examination before we start, you know, because if a client brings it to me <clears throat> and they tell me, my kid recorded this, I had no idea, listen to what's going on. I think I have to go stop mm -hmm. and do that. I got a problem. So even even in situations where there's you know it's clear there's some child abuse going on or manipulation or it would be i mean well, it's, there it's, are, it's gray area for well sure. look if there's evidence of child abuse i think the law is probably not going to punish somebody like that but if it's just evidence of a parent being mean and yelling and calling them names and being the ugly parent but not committing a crime there's a problem there's okay. some exposure there <laughs> um and so Okay, so children, you know, doing the recordings. Of course, kids are more savvy with these electronic devices than a lot of times their parents are. Um, but there are other areas, too, where people kind of kind of step into this. So, you know, it used to be five years ago or so, you know, putting the tracker on Sorry, the... I got it. you're right. Kids are more savvy about this stuff. I, I have three boys. Yeah. We do our best to minimize their electronics use as best we can. And they got phones and tablets and Xbox. We control how many hours are on it. And one of my kids created an alternative Xbox account so that he could play and not be under. I'm like, in this in this nuclear arms race <laughs> of technology, with the, we're losing to the kids all the time. We so. are. We really are. <coughs> I also have a voice. So I know. They have all kinds of ways to outsmart us. Um, and staying, staying ahead of it is just a losing game. I Try mentioned that incident in case I get my kids to watch the YouTube of this. Right. The kid that did it will know I'm talking about him. That's exactly right. Dad knows. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so kind of going back to some of the other methods of surveillance. So, you know, putting the track, the, ge the geographic tracker on the um, device mm -hmm. on the car was one that we used to see a lot. We don't, I don't see that so much anymore, I think in part because our devices are already tracking everything. That's true. The devices are already tracking it. Um, placing of a tracker has diminished because, the, like you said, there's other devices doing the tracking. But all of that tracking without the other person's consent is improper, whether they do it with a separate magnetic device or you're tracking somebody's phone location without their permission. Um, the usually, you know, I, I see plenty of devices being advertised. I saw one just the other day that the point was never lose this item again, right? You could put it inside the wind, the, the, the well of your car, the fender well of your car. Right. So you never worry about where your car is again. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> people really losing cars that much that we need to do that. I mean, my car 
links to the phone when I get in. So when I park, it tells me where I last parked. I mean, everybody's phone's doing this. So you don't need that. That's the cover for the device, but it's a, it's a tracking device, right? It's really tiny. So you could also put it on your kid's bike. Right. So that if your kid's leaving his bike all over the neighborhood at, at friends' houses, you can figure out where it is. There's some legitimate purposes for that. Like on my keys or my wallet. <laughs> great, one. <laughs> great one. Right. Um, I actually have a device in my wallet right now that's like a credit card so that it's so I can find out where it is on my phone because I did misplace my wallet uh, the other day and so I can find it not just on a map but then it if I hit the button it will if I'm in the same room and I can't find it it will chime so there's little devices like that that are legitimately useful but not okay to put in your wife's wallet without her knowledge correct now one of the other problems we have with these things is when couples are married they oftentimes have free reign on each other's email accounts and bank accounts and passcodes to get into phones and stuff like that. That's just what you do when you're, or at least some people do when they're in married and they trust each other. Um, once you've gotten the divorce proceedings going, I think at that point it's pretty clear you no longer have that level of trust. So I, we always tell our clients to change all the passwords right. and, and don't make it something that the other side can guess. Um, and if, and I tell them, do not go moving around in their stuff, even if you can guess their password, because you don't have permission anymore. Just because you're still married, it's clear you don't want to be together anymore. You don't have that, that prerogative. And certainly, once you've gotten divorced, and now you're just in the custody battles later on, the modifications and enforcements, certainly you don't have that permission anymore. So just because they've left the password the same, don't go in there. Yeah. And that we see that a lot. And so... Live 360, people track each other's phones. Find my iPhone, people track families and stuff on here. Um, there are some pieces of, of stuff where you can have the information legitimately and others where, yeah. And I think we as lawyers need to be mindful of that and, and caution our clients about that. If it's through find my iPhone and the other side simply hasn't removed you and, and you haven't removed them, you're sharing that information. Um, if it's through you know, another app and you no longer want them to know where you're at, you need to make sure you remove yourself from that app and remove them so you can't do those things. Right, right. Now, you can for your kid. You have every right to find where the kid's phone is. If by virtue of tracking the kid, you're also tracking the other parent, it's a side effect. Uh, and I, I'm going to talk about that too because, you know, there are things, for example, um, like keylogger software <laughs> that uh, is marketed to parents and can be very helpful. <laughs> In trying to stay in necessary and trying to keep your kids safe and want to stay one step ahead. But putting that same keylogger software on your um, soon-to-be exes uh, is going to be very that uh, will be a detrimental. That'll be yeah. a crime. So call it what it is. Yeah. exactly right. Um, and the other thing I see a lot is, you know, the, the cameras around the house. So if you install them in your home and you both knew they were there, right, then... Oddly enough, there aren't as many prohibitions against visual recording. Okay. Um, it's the oral, the audio recording that is um, going to get people in the most trouble. Um, so video just stuff be, isn't as big of a problem. I mean, be mindful of what was installed, but mm -hmm. I would say don't go installing new stuff <laughs> as you're moving out, right? right. <laughs> not, not a good idea. And also not to have those kind of cameras. It's one thing if they're on the outside of the house. Like a ring but, doorbell, for instance, exactly. things like that are fine. Yeah. Um, even external security cameras are fine. And it's putting them in the bedroom. <laughs> well, the yeah, putting them in putting them in places where it's just creepy is yeah. is yeah, that's going to get you a problem. 
The final thing I want to just touch on a little bit, and then we'll wrap up. This has been really informative and fun. Um, is to talk about use. You know, you've just you've just found out that um, you know you have this knowledge that the other side may have committed a crime, and so maybe you know you want to use that to get your case settled. What? Where do people go awry with using kind of this information and knowledge about criminal? Um, criminal conduct. So civilians don't have the same restrictions we do as lawyers. As a lawyer, we are not permitted to threaten the use of the criminal justice system in order to gain leverage in a civil proceeding. So we can't threaten, hey, I'm going to prosecute you for family violence unless you give me everything I want with respect to the kids. If we relayed that kind of offer as a lawyer, we're we got a problem, okay? Right. I, I once encountered an attorney in a informal settlement negotiation where the the concern was interesting. In that in that scenario, the there was a stepchild who had effectively been raised by the step parent along with the biological parent for years, so much so that the stepchild had a really strong affiliation for the step parent. Mm even more than with the biological parent. And so the child was a teenager at this point, would frequently leave the biological home and flee and stay at the step-parent's home. And the step-parent never adopted the child, so it had no legal right. The step-parent was keeping the child safe though, rather than the child sleeping at a random friend's house or God forbid, somewhere unsheltered. And, and both parents knew what was going on when the biological parent got fussy with the step-parent. There were threats about they're going to be prosecuted for harboring a runaway, um, etc. There's, there's a crime that could be committed there. Well, I looked into it and it turns out so long as the person who is harboring the runaway notifies the parent where the kid is within 24 hours and or notifies law enforcement of where the kid is, they're fine. And so when that threat was made, it was, it was made in the course of a little discussion. I think they walked the line just right of saying in a way that didn't, the lawyer didn't violate the code of ethics. And when I pointed out to them that, Hey, um, you realize that's not a crime because of this, and that's what's happened every time. That lawyer mentioned, um, we both know it's not whether or not the charge sticks. Whoa. And so that's that a is, lawyer who went over the line. Right. Okay, that that's that's unpro that's improper, okay? Because it was clear they were using the threat of a criminal case. Worse, one that they knew they couldn't make. They were just making the criminal accusation. That's a problem. So. We as lawyers can't do that kind of thing if we've learned that the other side has committed a crime. But the client can just go do what they need to do to report the crime. Okay, if if the crime that we know happened is that the child was abused, smacked around by one of the other parents, that's assault, right? Mm -hmm. The parent that knows of this can just report it to the police. The police then, you know, take an investigation, turn it over to the DA's office, and a crime is prosecuted. It doesn't mean we that a crime can't be prosecuted. It just means we can't threaten to do it. The client just either needs to do it or not do it. We should advise them, hey, 
if you do this, this is how it will impact your family law case. Um, I can't be a part of, we're not going to relay that or threaten them. We're not doing that. Um, I will help you speak with the police if you want. I'll, I'll help you do that part of the thing and, and communicate on your behalf, be your lawyer in regards there, but I'm not going to use the threat of that case in the family law case. It just has to happen or not happen. That's it. And I, th I just think it's important for people to understand when you're working with a lawyer, your lawyer should be abiding by those ethical um, uh, obligations because, you know, I think it's natural for people to think, oh, we can use this to get the settlement that I want. But um, Well, the other one that happens really a lot is like, let's say we talked about the um, salt family balance cases, right? Mm -hmm. Where the husband or the wife get into an argument and then they realize they didn't, they didn't want it to be that bad. So like... We got to be very cautious. One of the things that a victim of an assault case can do is execute what's called an affidavit of non-prosecution. They can convey to authorities, they are swearing out an affidavit says, I no longer want to prosecute for this crime. Typically, they're going to need to put a better reason in there than that because lots of legitimate victims of family violence get cold feet and drop these cases. And then that's why the perpetrator takes it further the next time and they are hurt. So law enforcement is typically, pardon me, looking for something more than just, I don't want to prosecute anymore. The victim has to kind of explain why they don't want to prosecute. And it's really, you got to be careful there because if the victim says, look, I just made it up. Well, now they've admitted to a crime of their own, filing a false police report, mm -hmm. right? Um, so they're really loath to do that. But a lot of times they can, say it in a way that says, look, this was an argument that got out of control. Um, I think I overreacted by calling the police, et cetera, et cetera. You, so they can, they can say it in a way that doesn't say they made it up, but it explains that, look, this, this really doesn't need to be a criminal case. Right. Um, negotiating the dismissal of the criminal case in the context of the family law case, big problem, big problem. Yeah. Cause that's, both sides are using the criminal case and, as and leverage. It, yeah, not yeah. good. So. Yeah. Lots, of, lots of minefields here, and it's so great to have an expert in both family law and criminal law to come and well, visit with us. The Board of Legal Specialization would quibble with you about expert in criminal law. I, I have two or board experience. Sides. Okay. <laughs> right. You're get mad expert at me in family it. law and experience though, in criminal go. law. So <laughs> we can say that. Um, thank you so much. For that sure. has been great. We are going to include a link to uh, Scott's uh, information so you can contact him if you have questions and want specific answers that apply to your case. We thank you for taking time to watch us today. We hope you'll subscribe uh, to our podcast and continue to tune in for additional episodes. Thank you. Thank you.